You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning and welcome. My name is Lise Grande, and I am the head of the United States Institute of Peace, which was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a national, nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. We are delighted this morning to welcome Amos Hochstein, the Special Presidential Coordinator for Global Infrastructure and Energy Security, for a discussion on the historic maritime agreement that was reached between Israel and Lebanon last October. The agreement is remarkable. It establishes a permanent maritime boundary between the two countries for the first time since Israel was established in 1948. The agreement strengthens regional security. It gives Lebanon an urgently needed source of new income from the Kana gas reservoir and it opens the way for Israel to extract oil and gas from the Karish field and export these to Europe, who needs them desperately. It also lays the groundwork for future possible land border negotiations between the two countries. The role played by Special Envoy Hochstein was decisive. He built on earlier efforts. Some of the greatest mediators in the international community had tried to solve this problem. They failed, but he didn't. The special envoy mediated between the two countries and kept offering options and draft agreements for them both to consider until they finally agreed on one. His exceptional leadership has been lauded by all of the concerned parties and heralded by the State Department, this is a direct quote, for demonstrating the transformative power of American diplomacy. Amos, welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. Mona, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Lise. Uh, I'm Mona Yacoubi, and I'm a senior advisor here at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Let me welcome all of you here in the room, as, the, as well as those of, us who are, those of you who are joining us online. Amos, welcome. It's a real honor uh, and pleasure to have you here. Um, what I want to do is maybe just actually dive right into a conversation with Amos. We're going to talk for about 30 minutes, and then we're going to open it up to all of you for your questions. Um, I'm actually going to draw on a few of your bio lines for this first question, because this deal did not uh, materialize overnight. It, it had a fairly long gestation period, uh, more than 10 years across three administrations. You were serving in the Obama administration, uh, perhaps when negotiations first started. At that time, you were both uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Diplomacy and then later Special Envoy and Coordinator for International Energy Affairs, and you led the Bureau of Energy Resources. This deal has been a long time in the making. Um, what is it that changed most recently to make this sort of momentous agreement possible? Well, Mona, first, let me just say thank you for, for having me. And it's an honor, it's my honor to actually be at the uh, U.S. Institute of Peace, uh, which contributes so much to the conversation about how do we get to um, resolution of conflict. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, and especially with you uh, on, on the, in this conversation. You know, Liz a moment ago said that others had failed in their 
uh, attempts to negotiate this deal and I succeeded. And I w I, I'd like to just amend that a bit because <laughs> I was one of the people who failed. Uh, so I've, I tried doing this in, tw in 2015 and I myself failed. So I, I think that it's a little bit of an unfair advantage because I got to fail once and try again. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that's the key uh, ingredient to success is to, uh, to fail a couple of times before you, you actually succeed. Look, what I think changed when I came back into the administration uh, in the summer of uh, 2021, and I was asked to take a look at what's happening in Lebanon just because we were so concerned about the fact that electricity supply in uh, generation for the Lebanese people had declined dramatically as part of the economic collapse in, in Lebanon. And we were looking at options, and the fear is always that with economic collapse comes political collapse, and usually that feeds on itself. And we were in a dangerous situation. So we started looking actually not at the maritime, but at other things and other ideas that, um, that I started promoting at the time that would create both short and long-term solutions for, or I should say medium and long-term solutions for, for Lebanon. And then I was asked, would you consider looking at the maritime agreement again? And I said, no, because I've tried, I failed, and uh, <laughs> don't want to do that again. But I agreed that we would do one trip where we would talk to the parties and see, is there an opening here? And I did one trip, and I believed, I believed that there was an opportunity. Conditions on the ground changed. Hmm. I think there were the people in charge of different portfolios and files were different, uh, and people matter. Uh, I think there was a for the first time crystallizing that need of the, there's a, you can ignore the economics for a certain time mm. to promote your own political uh, aspirations, but at some point that tilts to the other side. I felt <coughs> like the tilt had happened or was potentially there to, uh, to really talk to the Lebanese people more than to the Lebanese government mm. about why this was the time. This is the, it's, it's unprecedented to be able to do a, maritime negotiation over an economic issue in its core between two countries where one doesn't recognize the existence of the other, so that, that creates a little of a challenge, <laughs> and where they're officially at a state of war and in a continuous state of war for 70 years, and where there's no tradition of reaching agreements. In other words, Israel has other uh, countries it was at war with that it has already reached other agreements, whether important or not, but there's a history of reaching agreements or understandings. Lebanon's not one of them. It's also the two countries that have fought more wars with each other mm -hmm. than any other with a para-state terrorist organization uh, right there on the border. So there were a lot of challenges, but I thought that we had a moment of opportunity uh, that we may not get again. And so I agreed to, to walk, and I think that's what made the difference. So you've, you've started to reference a bit the complexity of this deal. Right? These are two states that are at war with one another technically. The U.S. has a role in the agreement. France has a role in the agreement. Uh, private French energy company Total has a role. Can you, for, the, for those of us that haven't followed the ins and outs, can you unpack a little bit um, kind of what, what is different about this deal? How should we understand it? What does it achieve and what doesn't it achieve? At its core, it's a boundary agreement. It is not an energy agreement. It's a boundary <laughs> agreement. It creates a legal 
internationally recognized boundary between the two, not in land, but in the sea. Um, that is at its core what this is. However, in order to get there, we have to remember what is, what are the, what's the underlying environment that we're dealing with. There was a discovery, th this is a disputed zone that has existed in dispute for a very long time, but nobody really cared for much of that time about it. It was fairly far offshore. The only part of that zone that people cared about was let's say the first five, six miles of, because of the uh, unique uh, environment geography of a rock that sticks out into the water so you really care from a security perspective there's not a lot of fishery even in that area because of, uh, of that and therefore it didn't really it wasn't that all that important to either side and then came the uh, natural gas discoveries in the eastern Mediterranean in Israel in Cyprus in Egypt and suddenly there's a value to it and in 2011 the Lebanese actually had discovered that there was a potential gas field uh, and one that just as it would, we would have it in this region, it stretched geographically from undisputed Lebanon territory all the way down to undisputed Israeli territory, making sure that it covers every piece <laughs> of the dispute uh, in every way possible. So we have a real potential for economic activity and because of that geography, it means that it was licensed for exploration by both Israel and Lebanon. Hmm. Thereby there was a recipe for a disaster mm -hmm. because suddenly there was something to fight over and both sides had legal claims. So what this deal is, one, establishes a maritime agreement that is a line. Lines can't go in zigzags, you know, in hmm. this case they're a straight line that starts at a, a certain point and ends at a certain point. It also governs, though, that the entire structure, the entire gas field that, will, that has been discovered but not yet explored, so we don't know if there's commercial gas and how much, but all of it, whatever is discovered, will be by Lebanon for Lebanon. So the gas will not go to Israel. However, Israel has a fair right to some of this gas because it does extend beyond the line that was agreed to on the boundary but they will not be able to exp exploit that. Instead, they will be, it will be purchased once gas is discovered, analyzed, and agreed to on what the valuation is. And then the consortium will have to buy Israel's share out. This means that we have multiple agreements. When we talk about the maritime agreement, there's not one agreement. There's different things that have to be signed because the parties can't sign with each other, nor can their proxies, meaning the companies can't sign on their behalf. So it has to be completely separate agreements, which leads to even more complexity to the suite of agreements that we had to do here, where the US had to play uh, a role because they can't sign with each mm -hmm. other. So each party, Lebanon signs with the United States, Israel signed with the United States, Total signed, or on behalf of the consortium, signed with the government of Lebanon, they're a licensee. They have a separate agreement that they signed with Israel that we uh, help craft. Uh, and then there is a number of other agreements in order just to be able to get to the point of exploration. So the way you've described it, it, it sounds like it was very much a zero, or it looked like a zero sum proposition, right? How, how, what insights were you able to come upon to take it out of a zero sum game and bring it to, I think what I've heard you reference uh, as a win-win for both parties? 
The zero sum is how we, the United States, and I think how the world approaches negotiations, mm -hmm. by and large. And I don't, it's an, a little bit of an unfair characterization because people always say every agreement negotiation is a win-win and it's in the negotiating phase trying to convince people. But at the end of the day, what did we have? We had a boundary agreement dispute, uh, sorry, a boundary dispute. We'll stretch a line. And what has been the discussion for 12 years was which side will get how much? Mm -hmm. Will you get 60 and you get 40? Will it be 50-50, 55-45? Is 63-43? That's where the entire negotiation was. And then what we say is we'll throw in some sweeteners. If you agree to a 58-42, then we'll give you also the 42 side will get some sweeteners that are unrelated to this deal. That's how we do politics, right? We'll also throw in a couple of planes. <laughs> You'll get a couple of AID projects and you know we'll do a deal. That, that's basically how we do this around the world. And I did not think that that was going to work. Mm -hmm. We tried that, doing that. So we changed it from let's not talk about percentages, but rather change the conversation to ask a simple question. What do you, Lebanon, actually need? What do you want? What's a win for you? And same question to Israel. And the answer immediately was what the other side would get. So for Lebanon, the win was, what will Israel cannot, forget Israel, don't say the word Israel, just tell me what do you want, and the same thing with the Israelis. The Israelis immediately go to what's unfair, and why do we have to give up, and what, what the Lebanese will get. So we changed the conversation. The hardest part was to identify what is actually good for Lebanon, what do they need out of this, and what does Israel need. And the reality is they needed different things. And the wins, therefore the win-win really is when there's on paper, they're at conflict, but in reality, they're not. What Lebanon desperately needs is hope for the future on the economic side. Mm -hmm. You can talk about all, uh, my view, my personal views, we can have all the arrangements on politics in Lebanon, and they're very complicated. <laughs> and we can maybe even reach an agreement on who the next president's going to be and who the next prime minister's going to be. If you don't do it with an eye towards the economics, it will fail. It's a recipe for failure. So you'll have a president. So what? If people now, when I started this negotiation, people told me it's a disaster. We're between six and eight hours a day of electricity. Today, we are below two. It's not going in a different direction. So a win-win means Lebanon gets foreign direct investment. It gets a potential of discovery. It creates a narrative that foreign companies are investing. And when foreign companies invest, it usually, if it goes well, it encourages other foreign companies to invest. It's a takes away a huge security risk, which means insurance companies and all the other enabling environment that you need for an investment suddenly is possible. It has the stamp of approval of the United States and, and others, which means that I'm willing to take the risk of investment. That's what Lebanon needed, in addition to just actually the gas coming out of the ground and actually creating an opportunity. What did Israel need? At the end of the day, Israel doesn't need the gas from the Kana field. It needs mm. that they already have several discoveries. One more field is not going to make mm. or break the Israeli economy. However, the Eastern Mediterranean has become not only a source of one of Israel's biggest economic successes, but also a dependency. The entire economy, they were able to go greener by getting rid of uh, the coal and replacing it with natural gas. When Russia was about to invade Ukraine, the price of natural gas mm -hmm. in the world went up to from $5 to 50 and ultimately reached mm -hmm. its peak $95. That was true in all of Europe and all of Asia. 
who didn't have to pay those prices? Israel. So at a, at a time when the recession was setting in in Europe and in Asia, Israel could grow because its base cost of electricity was 10% that of Europe, which means manufacturing and, and, and high tech, which is some of it is data centers and so on are very electricity dependent. So they don't need the gas. What do they need? They need stability mm. along the border. They need certainty and they need security. So the deal has in it a codification of the, the buoy line. It has some areas near the shore that are, don't have that much meaning to Lebanon, but do have a lot of meaning for Israel. Further out where the gas reserves are, have a lot of meaning for Lebanon, less meaning <laughs> for Israel. So we can create structures in the agreement that provide for the Israeli security needs provide for the Lebanese gas and creates the kind of stability environment for, that both countries desperately need to attract, one, to attract investment and one, to have continuity of service for the electricity needs. So the deal establishes a permanent maritime border. Um, I think a, a, an obvious question that comes to mind with these two warring states is, can the deal pave the way for negotiation of a land border? I believe it does. I think there are conditions on the ground today are not there to do that because you actually need a government in Lebanon Indeed. to do that. Um, we have an interim government uh, that is functioning as a government, but still this would require more than that. You need a president uh, and the country needs to be on a set path in order to be able to agree to a, to a boundary. Um, I believe, again, the Lebanese could decide, no, we want to have an agreement without a government, uh, but I don't know who would make that decision. We have a new government in Israel that's just been established. I think its focus is on other issues at the moment. Um, and so I think you need to have, in order to do something like this, you need to have a certain stability on both sides politically uh, to, be able to, to be able to negotiate such an agreement. But I think that we were careful in the maritime agreement to start it at a point in the water that doesn't touch the land by defini legal definition, so that it doesn't impact the land boundary. Mm. So I was very <laughs> cognizant to do this in a way that did not have any effect on the boundary. I I am mm. one of those who believes it is po it is possible. Mm. A lot of people do disagree with me, so I, I just want to be clear. This <laughs> is even within the U.S. government. I'm sure there are those who are would listen to me and say, you know, you're dreaming. There's it's not possible. But I will tell you, most of them and everyone else told me it was not possible mm. to reach a maritime agreement either. So I believe in the art of the possible. Thank goodness for your optimism. I think it's important. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Lebanon uh, in particular. I mean, you've noted there's a political vacuum there. The country is in the midst of an unprecedented economic meltdown, um, unfortunately. I, I think it's fair to say self-inflicted. Um, the Lebanese political class political leadership such as it exists refuses to move forward on IMF mandated reforms. And so there's been a concern about this deal that it would serve as um, yet another distraction from the need to undertake reforms because um, the Lebanese political leadership will point to the deal and say, oh, okay, well, we're going to have you know, billions coming in in gas revenues, no need to move on, on these reforms. What can you say, and I, I know this isn't necessarily in your bailiwick per se, but what, what could you say about um, both efforts to ensure that the um, revenues from the gas do not end up being uh, pocketed by corrupt 
elites? What's, what's a mechanism to ensure against that? And how can the U.S. ensure that Lebanon moves forward with much-needed reforms? So there's a lot in what you just asked. So first, I care deeply about ultimately the success of Lebanon. I've spent a lot of time, I've been going to Lebanon for almost 30 years. Um, you know, one of the things that Prime Minister, the late Prime Minister Hariri, before he was assassinated and the tragedy of his assassination is that his political vision included almost entirely, was, was almost entirely built on economics. Hmm. On, uh, he and I used to talk about the fact that the American concept of if you build it, they will come mm. uh, from a field of dreams. And that was his entire policy. And many doubted it, but it actually worked. And if you look at the, the rebuilding of downtown Beirut and the road from the airport and through the tunnels and so on, that's what we need in Lebanon today is a political vision that is anchored in economics. Hmm. And I've said this in Lebanon many times. I go everywhere in the world I travel is run by Lebanese. I mean, <laughs> from, from Dubai <laughs> to Africa to the United States to the UK. You know, I was recently, we're promoting a, on the telecom side and around the world, a company that we've financed. And I look and I see, I ask, oh, so where are the different offices? And they're like, oh, we have, you know, New York, the U.S. and the U.K. and Dubai and Beirut. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> he said, well, I'm Lebanese. And, and, so, and I said, this is the tragedy. The whole world is being moved by Lebanese except for Lebanon. Mm. And if all these people were incentivized to stay in Lebanon and to build an economy, it could be one of the most flourishing economies mm. on the, in the, definitely in the Middle East and, and around the world. It has that potential. It mm. has the people. It has the resources. It has the environment. So we need to address what you just asked. And that is to make sure that if there's gas discoveries that they are um, done in a way that is preserved and for the people. Part of the agreement states that the consortium that is on this field, at least in these areas, has to be non-Lebanese, uh, non-regional, not Iranian or Russian or anything like that, but rather well-recognized international companies uh, so that you have more transparency, who will worry more about their global reputation than they do about another dollar or minus a dollar. And so that's part of it. There's, but we have time before we have to worry about <laughs> revenues. And I kept telling Lebanese, <laughs> don't fight over dividing up the revenues from the Ghana field before we know that there is gas in the Ghana field. Indeed. Let's just at least wait for that. On the reforms, they have to do the IMF reforms. We have to do the World Bank reforms. And I have, while we're doing this, we've been negotiating a gas deal from to, to increase electricity in the shorter term. I, I'll tell you, Mona, we can, within a matter of two weeks, increase the power the electricity to the hmm. people of Lebanon from two hours to six hours and eight hours. I can do that like that. Hmm. Everything is there. We came up with an idea in the summer of 2021 to fix the infrastructure, build it out, get the contract signed. We got it all done. Contracts between Lebanon and Egypt, Lebanon and Jordan, Lebanon, even the Syria piece, working around the, the whole issue of how do we manage the, the sanctions on, on Syria. The infrastructure was broken and leaky inside Lebanon. We got a contract. We were able to get a company hired. They fixed it. It's all done. It could flow mm -hmm. tomorrow. We had very minor reforms that needed to be done for the World Bank to be able to finance this deal. And it's taken over a year to get minor reforms. And for the first time a couple of weeks ago, 
two of the pieces of the reform out of the three were done. <laughs> One of them was putting an ad in The Economist. I mean, it's literally as, as, as simple as that. And that took, I was promised in July, in September, and October mm. that it was two days away. Hmm. But it got done now. So I still, we, I think the United States continues to push, and we w need to, and we will. And our ambassador, bless her heart, uh, is fighting the good fight in Lebanon every day on this. I think we can do it. We then have to make sure that international institutions live up to their end mm. of the deal. Mm. And not, we cannot have a narrative of Lebanon's too risky for international organizations if they do the reforms. They do the reforms, and look, the reforms that we just achieved in the electricity side are ones that have been on the table, literally on the legislative table and the government table since 2006 or 2008. And they now got done. So the leverage from this agreement, it's not that it's a distraction, it's the other way around. Hmm. It shows that it actually delivered something that nobody believed was going to happen and delivered afterwards more things. In other words, Total actually has, together with ENI, has rented office space, they've brought their people in, their people, so money is already being spent in the Lebanese economy on this. One of the companies exited the consortium and Qatar joined the consortium, something that the United States, we, I worked very hard for, and I think is a, another sign of a Gulf countries, we've been reading about how they've been leaving Lebanon. This is one taking a risk and coming in hmm. on a commercial side, not giving out money, but investing in Lebanon. Again, not contributing, but investing in Lebanon. So. I think that we're showing that there is reward for reform. But it's, hmm. it's not just on the Lebanese, it's also on some of these international organizations that we can't have an attitude that it's too risky. It's too risky for a commercial bank. That's why we have multilateral development banks. That's why we have IFIs. So I want to open it up to the audience, both here and those online. And those of you who are online, please use the chat box uh, to ask your question, and then we'll, we will get it. Uh, we will ask it to, to Amos. Before I do that, though, I do want to sort of broaden this discussion a little bit beyond the, the Lebanese-Israeli deal and ask you, to what extent does this deal serve potentially as a model for either other disputes in the Eastern Med, of which there are, a few, um, or more broadly, uh, in the region for de-escalating conflict. And I will note that you were in Iraq uh, maybe earlier this year, and I think we're engaged in discussions between Baghdad and Erbil on, on those energy disputes. But what, what, what have you learned, and what could be applied from this model to other conflicts in the region? I think that our foreign policy and our national security engagement is, has to change. And I think the projection of power used to be, what's the size of your military? How many planes do you have? What kind of planes do you have? What kind of missiles do you have? And that was your projection of power. And diplomacy was around strength and showing that, that power. And there's surely that still is part of narrative of creating um, military deterrence between, between enemies and between states. But what I believe has changed dramatically is today it's all about economics. Hmm. I don't believe that China necessarily is going to try to beat the United States on the battlefield as much as it seeks to dethrone the United States on the economic hmm. field. The Marshall Plan gave the United States, beyond rebuilding Europe after the devastating war, it created a economic integration between the US and Europe 
that endured for, for 70, 80 years. And that's what others are looking at, that model of how do you do that? How do you come in and, now you can do it in a nefarious way and you can do it in a positive way. I believe that if we can engage in, in disputes and in areas of relative peace hmm. in that, with that frame of mind, where what do you actually, what do countries need? The win-win is, it's easy to say win-win, everybody wants a win-win. Mm -hmm. They're not always very easy to achieve. But I think they're remarkable, sometimes they are right there. And I think Baghdadi Erbil is a great example mm -hmm. where right now it's engage in a spiral of lose-lose. Mm -hmm. uh, Erbil and Erbil, uh, or Erbil and Suleimania, are engaged in a lose-lose. But if you start taking, broadening these apertures, and say, don't look at your only on your what, what are you what are you going to get if you make a compromise politically, that is not that much of a compromise, and you suddenly can look at a region that says, all right, Baghdad and Erbil can have an agreement on revenue sharing that will enable unlock, gas development in Erbil, gas development in southern Iraq, you can, not buy as much <laughs> gas from Iran, and this is forget about just the Iran politics, but why are you buying expensive gas from Iran when you have your own? Why are you flaring 80% of your gas when you have a gas-fired power plant that's not being used? While 12 hours a day, there's nothing but generators on diesel in most of Basra. Why is Turkey short gas? Why is Europe short gas when you have a short distance of gas from Erbil that can go into Turkey, used in Turkey, and moved on to Europe as part of a diversification from Russia? I had this conversation in 2014 in Erbil. And I think now is the moment to be able to do that as well. But this goes well beyond the region. Yep. We have to look whether it's telecom or it's renewable energy. And now we don't have to build pipelines. I came in and said we don't have to build a pipeline from Egypt and Israel to, to, uh, to Greece and Europe. Why build a gas pipeline? I advocated for it 10 years ago, perhaps. But now generate electricity in one place and lay electricity lines down, and suddenly you can have a connection from Saudi through Egypt and through Israel and Jordan, all the way to, to generate clean power because Europe doesn't have the land and the abundance of sun and wind to be able to generate that cheap of electricity. But you can connect it via electricity lines. Don't think of transiting molecules, think of instead of molecules, electrons. And suddenly you can create the assets that the Middle East has and connect them to where what Europe needs and doesn't have, despite all the Green Deal and everything else. <laughs> it doesn't have it. And that now you can start looking at physical interconnection and integration that leads to a interdependency between <laughs> states and between regions that suddenly makes conflict much more costly for both sides because it's not just a military cost and the human cost, which for some bizarre reason that seems like a lesser cost, mm -hmm. but it has also economic cost. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, okay, I'm gonna lose my electricity or I'm gonna lose my revenues. So I think that it goes beyond energy. Mm -hmm. I think it goes into telecom and 5G and all these other things. But we can look at foreign policy and diplomacy as we engage differently and at the end of the day only the united states for whatever reason mm -hmm. only the united states can do that in these areas both those who are our strongest allies and those who spend a lot of time in social media attacking us at the end of the day 
That's the only state that can do this kind of indispensable diplomacy to bring people together. So I'm going to resist the temptation <laughs> to draw you out further on this, because I think it's fascinating. And we are at the US Institute of Peace very interested in understanding better the American model of peace building and diplomacy and what makes us distinct. And I think you're already circling around the notion of creative problem solving. Um, and, and a certain uh, you know, entrepreneurial and, and, and injection of ingenuity into how we do things. So maybe we're going to have to demand that you come back to have a deeper discussion on that. But I would like to now turn to those in the audience. Please raise your hands. Hanin, I've seen your hand already raised. Um, t please just wait for the mic and then introduce yourself and your affiliation and ask your question. OK, thank you very much for this fascinating discussion. Thanks, Mona, for organizing. My name is Hanin Raddar. I'm a senior fellow at the Washington Institute. Um, I've been following this issue very closely. I am Lebanese, and uh, this is professional and personal for me. And on the personal side, I would like to congratulate you on making Hassan Nasrallah utter the word Israel for the first time. So this is a huge achievement. So thanks for that. This caused waves in Lebanon. Uh, on the, uh, the second part of the discussion, which is the energy deal and the contracts on electricity and gas between with with Egypt and Jordan which hopefully will will come will come true but there are a lot of complications and sanctions aside there's the big question of part of it coming through uh, Syria and the parts in Syria that are controlled by Assad and uh, the Caesar sanctions aside the humanitarian issue aside there's a big question of this will give Assad, but not just Assad regime, also the Iranians and the Russians, one, access to uh, the, 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 the whole thing, the, the passage of the, of the gas and electricity, but also uh, not only access to it, but the control over it, which means that if they find it suitable, they will cut it. So this means that we're bringing Lebanon back into the fold under the control and um, desires of Assad, whatever, whatever he feels fit, and now also his partners, to access it or cut it. Uh, my question is, is there a way around it? And two, is it worth it? You're asking excellent questions that I've asked myself at the beginning of this process. So one, they don't have control over it. They can cut it, that is true, but it's not that they will cut it and keep the gas. If they cut it, they lose the gas too. So you're creating an interdependency. The amount of gas that's coming, so let's just start from the beginning. The amount of gas that's coming through is fairly small. We're talking about four hours of electricity a day for Lebanon. They will, the pass through, as you said, gas would come from Egypt through Jordan into Syria, stay in Syria in that region in the south, and then it will be swapped out for gas that will come on the other side because there's no infrastructure that connects the two. They will also get a tariff fee, but because of sanctions, they won't get it in money, they will get it in in-kind in a certain amount of gas. Now think about it, you don't get that much because it's a small percentage of the total as your fee. So if they're only getting four hours, you're talking about something like in the 20 to 30 minutes of, ele of electricity a day in that region of Syria. So as far as a bonanza for Syria, I would just, I would pump the brakes on that and, you know, caution us on how much they're getting. They are getting some, and that's a cost for us, the United States and the international community of giving anything to the Assad regime at this moment. But I think that you have to always look at, nothing's for free. 
I did not determine who Lebanon's neighbors were going to be. And <laughs> unfortunately, um, Israel, as far as a pipeline, is not an option. They have the ocean and they have Syria. So that's what I have to deal with. So you got to deal with the cards that you have in the deck that you've been dealt. Um, and, and that's what you work with. So they will get some, that is true. But the minute they cut off to Lebanon on one side, the gas gets cut off on the Jordanian-Syrian border. So they can't make Lebanon lose without them losing. And remember, once that gas flows, now that's another 30 minutes of electricity that don't exist in Syria either. So shutting it off hurts themselves. In the old days of control of Syria, that was not the case. They can have Ghazi Kanan and Khadam mm -hmm. and so on doing things to Lebanon that mm -hmm. had nothing, that would not hurt Syria at all. They just enjoyed hurting Lebanon. Mm -hmm. So one, there's no other option. And the option that does exist, what is on the table at the moment, listen to what Hassan Nasrallah says and what the Syrians say, bringing fuel from Iran that is saying, the IRGC saying, I will give it for free. And people come to me in Lebanon and say, great, it'll be free. I said, I've never heard of something for free. When the mob gives you a loan of $1,000, it doesn't cost $1,000 to give it back. So this is, the, the danger here is people always say, Mona, you talked about a distraction. Hmm. That would be a distraction. Hmm. Oh, we don't have to do reforms. Instead of getting the gas from Egypt, we'll just get fuel oil from Iran. Hmm. Now, as this, if we can get gas discoveries in the Mediterranean, if we can get the electricity going from Jordan, all of a sudden, Syria cutting it off may not even make that much of a difference in the long term. The point is to make that interconnection one of a diversified portfolio. And what Lebanon can do, now that we've changed the electricity law, now that we changed the tariffs for the first time, who would have believed that we'd be able to get the tariffs changed? I mean, in America, we don't talk about it, but that to me is one of my biggest achievements is just getting the tariffs changed after how many decades where we've had the same price. That means we open the door to rooftop solar and renewable energy that Lebanon can do. So we can bring ourselves to a point where the Syria part is relative, it's very meaningful in the early stages and less and less meaningful as we go along. So before turning to the audience, I, I'm seeing a couple of online questions that relate to what you've just said. One is, you know, what are the prospects for renewables? Uh, it, it, the question is particularly offshore, so I'm assuming wind, but I think if you could speak about renewables broadly in Lebanon, that would be good. And um, how, if there is gas out there, which I sounds like it's still an if, how long before it, it could actually be exploited and, and derive revenues? And then we'll, we'll turn it back to the audience. So on the exploitation, look, there's going to be exploration. I'm expecting at some point before the, before the end of this year, we will already have uh, a rig that arrives for the first time ever in Lebanese waters. Um, and then they will have to drill and find and uh, analyze and then do another drill. So it will take some time. If there is gas, you're talking about probably four years before meaningful gas can come out of the ground. Um, what I've told, what I've said in Lebanon on TV often is, think about 2016 when we had an offer on the table. If we reached it then, hmm. today we'd have gas yeah. flowing in Lebanon. You'd have 24 hours a day of electricity, which would have generated economic activity, probably less of the brain drain and outflows of migration of <laughs> middle class from Lebanon leaving. Uh, and you would be selling into a, potentially into the highest price of gas that the world has ever seen mm. during this past war. That's the opportunity cost. Mm. 
So four years, yes, it's four years. But if you say, oh, it's four years, it doesn't make any difference. Think about four years ago. And then think where you'd be today if you had done that. On renewables, we are engaged, the US government, we are supporting through AID and other mechanisms uh, to establish more renewable energy. I think it's a, it's a, it's a shame that in Lebanon there's, there hasn't been the kind of regulation that allows for rooftop solar at first. Offshore wind, again, let's not go to the hardest, most complicated piece of renewable energy before we do some of the things that are, uh, that are much more easily done. Uh, renewable energy today is much lower cost. And I think that changing the tariffs and creating an enabling environment legally in Lebanon uh, should allow, uh, you should have every construction of a new house and a new high riser in Lebanon should be mandating uh, a rooftop solar. Uh, at, you don't have to have full capacity for the building, but at least some. There has to be some incentives that the government gives to build this out. It is, it is, creates energy security. It would have more electricity. It would contribute economically. Joseph Habush. Thank you. Joseph Habush, al Arabiya English. Uh, I must say, as objectively as a journalist can be, as objective, I, I was one of those that was skeptical that this deal was going to get done. So well done to, to U.S. diplomacy. I've been covering it for you know ten years, almost ten, almost a decade now, from Hoff to uh, to, to you. You know we had Elizabeth, uh, did, did both Davids. Um, so, anyways, congrats and David Shanker as well. So well done to that. But my I have two questions. First is why wasn't this celebrated as much as one would expect domestically? Um, you know, from the State Department at least, we saw, I think it was maybe one statement leading up, I was constantly asking State Department, NSC and others, you know, what's the status on this? And there was a noticeable, uh, I guess, lack of, of, of celebration for such a success in U.S. diplomacy. So that's, that's one. My second one is, what's your response to those critics? And you mentioned there's, there was quite a bit on social media and other places as well to, uh, to you know, that this deal what serve the interest of, of Hezbollah and how do you how do you counter that or respond to that? Thank you. Uh, I have to admit that I'm less focused on the celebrations of the State Department. It's not known for its uh, celebrations, um, <laughs> but um, it's it's uh, busy with other things. Um, maybe Ed Gabriel, who's here, can answer that part of the question a little better than I can. Um, I think the president held uh, several calls with the Prime Minister of Israel, the President of Lebanon. We, he, that's not a regular occurrence uh, where the President spends uh, uh, time on the phone with the President of Lebanon. Um, the, uh, it came up and the, the President talked about it again in the press conference between him and President Macron during the, uh, uh, during the state visit. Uh, the president issued a number of statements. So I, I think to out, this is a deal between two enemy states. There's no signing ceremony. I mean, I think Washington likes visuals of it's not a deal unless there was something on the South Lawn or some kind of... Remember, we had to put up a... The signing it was a tent in the parking lot of a UN facility <laughs> on the border where we had to negotiate down to the point of which doorway entrance of the tent who would come in and would they look at each other or not and the tables so and no cameras so mm. I think a lot of that is the reason that our domestic media doesn't usually look at these kinds of things in general and uh, so I think that I, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't look at the, uh, the statements from the State Department or any other uh, statements that you were hoping to see as an indication of where, uh, how the U.S. government approached it. I think there was a, uh, I think the President himself uh, saw this as something important and he, uh, without, without his personal involvement, it could not have been done. In other words, he at critical moments was uh, intervening things behind the scenes and I think everybody in Lebanon and Israel knew that the president, President Biden himself, was uh, was committed to this uh, happening. And I, I can tell you with all my efforts, without his intervention and the fact that he had a history on this issue in the Eastern Mediterranean from mm. when he was vice president, mm. uh, where everybody knew his involvement in Cyprus and in Israel and Egypt and so on, uh, back in uh, back when he was vice president, that contributed to this effort. Ambassador. Sorry, Hezbollah? I think you should ask Hezbollah that. Um, I think they were against the deal for a very long time. I think I don't look at Hezbollah. Look, I didn't negotiate with Hezbollah. I negotiated with the president of Lebanon, the prime minister of Lebanon, and the president of the parliament. Uh, so, as I said, shuttle diplomacy was really inside Lebanon first and only then shuttle diplomacy with Israel. Uh, this is good for the Lebanese people. That's what's important here. This is good for stability in the region. That's what's important. If Hezbollah is for it or against it is not really my consideration. That's theirs. Ambassador Ed Gabriel. Thank you, uh, Ed Gabriel, recovering um, State Department diplomat. <coughs> um, Amos, um, congratulations on uh, a real important feat uh, for not only those countries, but I think for the region. Um, uh, you're somewhat of a rock star uh, in Lebanon now. Um, uh, people really appreciate what you've done. And one of the things that you've um, shown is when America gets involved in an issue, it can actually really lead and have a positive outcome. Um, you talked to Mona about kind of a new diplomatic way of maybe America leading in the world. It brings me back to some of the specifics in Lebanon, particularly the IMF reforms. You've got a parliament that just won't come together. Um, I happen to think that um, actually what happened was a deal was kind of pushed down some people's throats. Take it or leave it. Not the kind of uh, negotiation I think that you would have advocated, but that's where it is. The question is, can you lend some sense of facilitation uh, to that process so that all parties may be able to have a, a, a safe space to have a conversation and come up with a IMF plan that works for everyone. So Ed, you're asking me if I would get involved in IMF negotiations in Lebanon. I, I, thought, I, was we, trying I thought we were diplomatic. friends. Um, I thought we were friends. Um, look, I, I don't know the details of the negotiations on the IMF package. I think that whoever is in charge of those, I'm sure, understands that we ha getting to a deal is the most important part, and therefore we have to look at when we put conditionality on in any scenario, I believe that we have to not only think what one side, the giving side, needs from the conditions, but also what the other side can do. So, and that's not always apparent, but one side is developing those set of requirements in Washington or London or Paris or elsewhere. Um, but we also have to understand what's, what's doable, what is actually achievable. 
And there has to be a give and take, because the other side can say always, this is not doable. <laughs> but I think what we've shown in some of the reforms now that the World Bank has asked for, that after 40 years we can get a tariff change, uh, 35 years, we can get a tariff change, <laughs> that we can get some reforms in the electricity sector, um, that Lebanese themselves said was not possible. They told me repeatedly, the politics in the parliament will not allow for this to happen. And yet they did. <laughs> so I think on the IMF, I think there has to be an understanding in Lebanon, too, that above all, you've seen what's happening with the banks. You, you see where we are. This, there's this notion in Lebanon and around Lebanese, around the world, and everybody who touches has worked on Lebanon, that Lebanon is one of those countries that lives on the edge, lives on the cliff, but it never falls off. And I think that's a crazy way to think because yet that's always true until it falls off. Hmm. And countries do fall off. And Lebanon is testing that proposition on an increasingly dangerous way. When you have no electricity, no fuel, no economics, and yet some people are living as though there's cash flowing from somewhere. Um, and the banks are, you know, it's a mess. And it can't, it, it, it is, it's a shell game that can't continue. So yes, if you want this kind of an injection, massive injection of capital from American taxpayers and European taxpayers and Asian taxpayers and everybody else that pays, the IMF's not a bank. The World Bank's not a bank. They sometimes think they are, but they're not a bank. They're playing with taxpayer dollars from around the world. And Lebanon is not entitled to the taxpayer dollars. It is in our interest to give it but not if it's gonna go in and I'm gonna not see any, mm. I'm not gonna be able to see a trace of it a year later. So yes, they have to buckle up, move away from their squabbles in the parliament and with different factions and say, this is life or death. And sometimes that's the moment that you get together. I think this is the moment in Lebanon to say, if you still want a functioning country, this is your moment take away, and some of them don't want to agree to things just because they think somebody else will benefit, not even economically, but will have a political win from having it, from it being achieved. And that's what we have to get away from in Lebanon. I think we have to, once again, one of the things that we didn't talk about before, why did we get an agreement on this maritime deal? Because the people in Lebanon supported it. And that's why I took my case to the Lebanese people on a day-to-day -day basis where their interviews, and that's why almost never with print, right? With TV media, because print, you never know what gets printed. When you talk to the people directly and say, this is what this deal will do, don't listen to everybody else. This is what it's gonna do. This is what it includes. This is not a surrender, it is a good deal. And this is why. The generating of the public opinion for it meant the politicians knew if I look like I'm standing in the way, then I caused the problem. So nobody, it went from nobody was, everybody was afraid of being for it because somebody will, the other will say they're the, you know, that they betrayed the country. It went and it flipped. <laughs> Whatever organization or entity or faction or party was gonna be against it, was gonna be standing in the way of progress. On the IMF, I think it's the same thing. We have to generate, stop talking just to the government and we gotta start talking a lot more to the Lebanese people who have shown an ability over the last few years to, walk, to come out in the streets, 
to demonstrate, to say things with placards that we've never seen before written on those placards because they already don't believe anything the government says. So whoever's negotiating on the IMF behalf, I think that part of whatever reforms you want, spell it out for, to the Lebanese people. This is so that they know that the international community is not trying to choke them and, and try to leverage them because that's what they hear on TV every day. If that's not the case, go talk to the Lebanese people. I would tell my colleagues and people in the IMF, go talk to the Lebanese people and say, here's what we are demanding for our money to give to you. Doesn't even, and it won't sound that difficult. And if the Lebanese people understand it and they're talked to, we can't rely just on the government. We have to talk to those people. They will then support it forcefully enough that the people in parliament and the government will support it. I believe that. Henri Barki. Thank you. Henri uh, Barki, Lehigh University and the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, you didn't make too many friends when you came in and get, got rid of the, shall we say, the pipeline from to, to Europe. But then the war in Ukraine started and the whole strategic picture changed. I'm not saying you want to rebuild, the, you want to build the pipeline, but I just want to ask you, how does Ukraine figure out in the medium and the long term in terms of the whole strategic picture of gas and where the Middle East sits in there? Thank you. I will say my goal was not to make friends. <laughs> um, that pipeline is not, has never been proven to be economically feasible. It was discussed when I came in, it was already being discussed for six years with not a single actual feasibility study and costs ranging between 10 and $16 billion for that pipeline with no financing in sight. It would probably take, at the best case scenario, 10 years to get from feasibility study to construction, completion, and first gas into Europe. That means 2032, 2033, 34. You then need 20-year contracts to support that which means 2050 something. You tell me who in Europe is signing a contract for fossil fuels and specifically natural gas where they are committing to pay for that gas on a take or pay basis in the, into 2050 to 2060. Versus, I'm not against the interconnection and the integration. I'm all for it. That's been what I've dedicated so many years to. But all I was saying is instead of a pipeline for gas, have laid down electricity lines. At the end of the day, that's what the gas was going to be used for when it got to Europe. It was, it's not going into Eastern Europe and Western Europe for heating. It's going into Greece that uses gas differently from the rest of Europe. Everybody in Europe that gets gas from Russia is using it for heat. Greece is using it for electricity. I was one of the architects of the Southern Gas Corridor going into, into Greece. I supported long, big, complicated, expensive, overpriced gas pipelines, and they're important. And if we didn't do the pipeline diplomacy that the vice, then Vice President Biden, and I worked for him then, around Europe in 2012 to 2016, today Europe would not be able to survive these winters. But the reverse flow that we did from Bulgaria all the way up to Hungary through Romania that didn't exist then, we did it then. The Kirk Island LNG facility, the interconnection and reverse flow between Greece and Bulgaria, the Southern Gas Corridor being completed and choosing the route to go through Greece to Italy. If those things didn't happen, think about it, all of that was really hard to do because you had cheap gas flowing in from Russia and every time we wanted to have one of those projects, guess what? Big discounts coming in from Russia to undermine it. 
But the entire, that is the foundation of our entire, what President Biden wanted to do, which was to uh, surge gas capacity to Europe at the beginning of the war and before it. That all happened because we had that foundation. So I support the infrastructure. But we're, go we're going through the greatest economic transformation since the Industrial Revolution because we are seeing an energy transition that is happening at the same time as a, um, as a digital transformation. We're going from 3 and 4G to 5G. And there is, that's not just a step. From 3 to 4 is a step. From 4 to 5 is transformational. So as we're going through these two concurrent massive transformations, we have to change how we think about this and we have to invest differently and not build infrastructure that will be stranded assets around the world. And that was the idea. Ukraine is, can and should be the beneficiary of this energy transition. It, it should not only make money where its primary income before the war, its single largest income was a pipeline tariff where they, at good days, when depending on the price of gas, could get $2.5 billion a year on something they don't do, which is having a pipeline go through their territory. But they have one of the few countries in Europe that has an enduring, not just an enduring nuclear industry, nuclear power industry, uh, a know-how and an expertise, but also public opinion that actually supports it and provide clean energy. They have great wind and solar potential. They have an electricity system that I worked very hard with the Ukrainian government and Ukrainergo before the war to disconnect their electricity system from Belarus and Russia. We did that the, on February 23rd and 24th is when we concluded that disconnect from Russia and, and Belarus and the interconnection into the, through the NSOE into, into Europe. The day the war started was our final day. And we did that testing period in the two weeks leading up as the President of the United States was declaring that war was coming, trying to convince everybody to be ready for it. So we got that done at the nick of time. So Ukraine can become, we first have to rebuild the electricity, but the crisis, this war, this horrific war, has destroyed the electricity system in Ukraine. That means we get a chance to rebuild something from scratch, a whole new electricity system after the war is over. And that can become a remarkable boon, not only for Ukraine, but for the clean energy needs of, of Europe as a whole. So I'm, I'm a big believer that the minute we can get um, Putin to stop this war and Ukraine can rebuild on the energy piece, it will become, it can become, it has the potential to become the best thing that happened to Europe's energy transition. Amos. Thank you so much. I, I wish I had more questions. There are more questions online, but we're mindful of your very busy schedule. Uh, all of you, please join me in thanking Amos Hochstein. Congratulations on a remarkable deal. And I hope we'll invite you back again to, to delve further into these issues. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.